Start your morning with the CNN Daily News Briefing. In just three minutes, we'll tell you about the stories that are making headlines around the world. To listen, tell your smart speaker to play the CNN Daily News Briefing or find us in your favorite podcast app. Aaron, thanks. Good evening, everyone. Today has been a series, or we have seen a series of unsubtle reminders that the administration's repeated pronouncements that we are, quote, transitioning into greatness, in their words, and that this country has met the moment and, quote, prevailed, unquote, on testing, obscures evidence that the virus is not under control from the end of this pandemic, sadly, and that a reversal of the progress we have made is still possible if we don't listen to what our health officials and our scientists are telling us. Now, the first reminder today, a Capitol Hill, Capitol Hill hearing unlike any other, where how witnesses and lawmakers communicated was almost as important as what they communicated. And we'll get to all of that in a moment tonight. The other developments happened shortly after that hearing ended. One, an update to a University of Washington model that the White House has previously cited, plotting the course of this virus. Its new numbers, once again, project an even higher death count. 147,000 people projected to die in the U.S. through August 4th. That's an increase of 10,000 from their previous projection. The institute that publishes the model pointed to reasons, including a loosening of social distancing policies and greater mobility for people. The director of the institute told CNN that if people are not cautious, if they don't wear masks, and if the nation does not have the capacities to test, to do the contact tracing, and to isolate people who are uh, infected, then, quote, I think we'll see the numbers go up. Today, Johns Hopkins reports there are 82,246 people who have died in the United States. 1,564 have died today alone. The other reminders, we are far from the end tonight, come out of California. The first, California State University, with 23 campuses and close to half a million students. They say that for the most part, they will not have in-person classes come the fall, as in around four months from now. The other reminder, and where we begin tonight, is out of L.A. County. A health official there said just a short time ago that the county will extend its stay-at-home orders by three more months. Now, just to give you some idea of the importance of the development, according to the most recent census figures, L.A. County is home to about 10 million people. By population, is roughly the size of either Michigan or North Carolina. In fact, only nine states have bigger populations than L.A. County. We want to get a, a, an update on the latest. Joining us now is the mayor of Los Angeles, Eric Garcetti. Mayor Garcetti, thanks so much for being with us. So what exactly does this mean? Will, will L.A. be extending its stay-at-home order through July? Well, a couple of things. It means that this is just as dangerous a virus today as it was when it arrived. And we should never become too comfortable. We're learning to live with it. We are not moving beyond it. But it's important not to overreact and not to underreact. Not to overreact today, huge headlines, it was on CNN and LA Times, when our county health officer, uh, Dr. Ferrer, merely said that an order would stay in place for at least three more months. That doesn't mean the order stays in place exactly as it is today. But of course, we're still going to have to protect our vulnerable and our seniors. We're still going to need to wear facial coverings. We're still going to need to physically distance. And the steps that we earn each week and each month are going to be based on where the numbers are and how safe we can make spaces and places I think in L.A. we've shown some success with that, with our construction industry, with things like farmers markets, which we had to shut down but reopen safely. So it's just a reminder of how delicate and fragile. But to not freak out when you hear a scientist say that it's still going to be here and we're still going to be living under health orders, all of us in America, for many, many months, if not into next year. But at the same time, it really puts that in our hands to know 
our compliance with these orders helps us take steps forward as we did this week in Los Angeles and as we hope to do a little bit with some more baby steps this coming week, too. So just to be clear, there will be some sort of stay-at-home orders continuing through July. The exact parameter of them, the details of them, that depends on what occurs. You said we, you may see some, uh, some adjustments. I, 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 yeah. in, what, in what time frame uh, did you just say? Did you say a week or, or within a week or after a week? And what, what yeah, do was, you have a sense of what the today, next instance, kind of loosening yeah. might be? So it was announced today, for instance, that, and remember, I'm the mayor of the city, so the county, which is separate, uh, makes these pronouncements. A lot of people called me friends and said, what did you just say? I said, I didn't say anything. But let me clarify it on CNN. Watch Anderson Cooper and you'll find out. What we did do is we moved forward this weekend, opening up our trails. We made sure that there's curbside pickup at five different categories of retail stores. Today, the county announced we concur that that will expand to all retail that beaches will open up this week for exercise and active recreation only in the wet sand, I guess is a good way of thinking about it, not hanging out and tanning in the dry sand. And every two or three weeks, we can assess those steps. If the numbers stay stable as they are here in Los Angeles, great. We've earned that and can build on that. Um, similar with workspaces, maybe manufacturing comes next because we've been manufacturing masks safely, um, just distancing the sewing machines and the workers. So each one of these steps is really both in the hands, a little bit of government, but mostly the people to comply with those recommendations. And the public health is clear. This is still a threat to us all. So for retail establishments, uh, you said that it'll be extended for all retail establishments. What does that actually look like curbside? I mean, so people don't go into a particular store. They order online or do they order through a window or something or an open door and then someone brings it um, out? Yeah, online or call ahead, as we've been doing with restaurants for uh, quite some time. Now this was opened up to bookstores, toy stores, up to florists, and a couple other categories. In the coming week, it'll be opened up to all retail establishments. But you bring up a good point, Anderson. These aren't easy, and it takes some time. We have hundreds of business ambassadors who go out there and help educate, encourage, if necessary, enforce, but to make sure that they aren't letting people into their retail shops yet that they are complying and posting that they've complied in their windows with the public health orders. And so each step allows us to get a little bit business back. I've been encouraging Angelinos to shop local, call that store that you love, get whatever it is that you used to buy from them, pay for it over the phone, and then they'll give it to you at the curbside. And so far, um, we've gotten a passing grade. We need to get it up a little higher to an A or a B, but it's definitely been a passing grade. And over the weekend, it worked well and gave some jobs back to people and some money back to local business owners. I've been buying actually my mask from a local uh, L.A. company called Leisure Lab that uh, makes, usually makes athletic wear. They've switched to masks, so I've been buying them uh, online. Awesome. The, the California State University Thank system you. announced today that, that it plans to cancel a majority of in-person classes for the fall. Is that a decision that you support? What about Los Angeles you know, uh, County schools this fall? Do you yeah. anticipate in-person classes will resume? I certainly hope so. Anybody who predicts today where the virus will be, um, tomorrow, let alone, you know, in the fall, uh, we will, won't know, but we should prepare for it. I absolutely think it'll be a different school than we're used to, whether that's fewer days week, whether it's half the class coming in, um, whether it's, you know, new spaces and places where we educate. I think it would be a pity if we have all of our children only online uh, throughout the rest of this calendar year. And we're watching places around the world where they're doing that safely. Again, it's all about our compliance, but if we can get the temperature checks, if we can get the testing in place, which is why I've been so passionate about testing 
and became the first big city in America to offer testing for uh, widespread for people with and without symptoms. We're going to need that in place. But I do believe that in the fall, the K through 12 level, we should be prepared. If the numbers are stable, yes, we should figure out safe ways for kids to be there at least some of the week face-to-face with teachers, with their peers. Um, At the higher education level, it's tougher because people often live in dormitories. That's higher risk. So I think each system needs to make that decision themselves. I support what Cal State University has done. uh, But there are spaces and places that we absolutely should be educating, I believe, by the fall face-to-face in safe environments. Uh, Los Angeles Mayor uh, Eric Garcetti. Thanks so much, Mayor. Appreciate it. Always. Thank you, Anderson. Take care. As we said at the top of the broadcast, one of the big moments of the day was that testimony of four top health officials, including Dr. Anthony Fauci. Really, what was so unusual about it, in addition to some of the testimony, was how it all came together. And it was like nothing we've seen before on Capitol Hill. Witnesses were not present, obviously, in the uh, the committee room. They participated by video conference, as did the Republican committee chairman and several other senators. Of the senators who attended, some wore masks, others did not. Individuals in the room were asked to be at least six feet apart. Public was uh, not permitted to attend. Phil Mattingly uh, shows us what happened once the hearing began. Take a look. The consequences could be really uh, serious. The White House's top public health officials issuing a stark warning as President Trump presses to reopen the country. My concern that if some areas, cities, states or what have you jump over those various checkpoints and prematurely open up without having the capability of being able to respond effectively and efficiently, my concern is that we will start to see little spikes that might turn into outbreaks. The highly anticipated Senate hearing, a surreal reminder of the new world facing everyone as the U.S.'s COVID-19 death toll surpasses 80,000. Republican Senator Lamar Alexander urging the administration to ramp up testing. All roads back to work and back to school lead through testing, tracking, isolation, treatment, and vaccines. This requires widespread testing. As the Democrats train their fire on the administration for an array of perceived failures by the president. President Trump has been more focused on fighting against the truth than fighting this virus. And Americans have sadly paid the price. Conflicting information about reopening guidelines. You work for a president who is frankly undermining our efforts to comply with the guidance that you've given us. And the administration's overall response. The time for magical thinking is over here. But the health officials touting progress on the country's fight. With one big caveat. The virus is not yet under control. I think we're going in the right direction. But the right direction does not mean we have by any means total control of this outbreak. With signs of progress on a vaccine, but not before schools restart in the fall. The phase one will directly go into phase two, three in late spring and early summer. And if we are successful, we hope to know that in the late fall and early winter. The idea of having treatments available or a vaccine to facilitate the re-entry of students into the fall term would be something that would be a bit of a bridge too far. And the federal official overseeing U.S. testing efforts projecting a massive ramp up in the months ahead. By September, taking every aspect of development, authorization, manufacturing, and supply chain into consideration, we project that our nation will be capable of performing at least 40 to 50 million tests per month. 
But it was Republican Senator Mitt Romney who responded to the claims of testing success with this sharp retort. I find our testing record nothing to celebrate whatsoever. Anthony Fauci also facing criticism from GOP Senator Rand Paul. And as much as I respect you, Dr. Fauci, I don't think you're the end all. With Fauci pushing back. I haven't made myself out to be the end all and only voice in this. I don't give advice about economic things. I don't give advice about anything other than public health. And Phil Madeline joins us now from Washington. So Senator Sanders also asked uh, Dr. Fauci if he thought the current total death toll of, of 80,000 was accurate. Uh, what did Fauci say? You know, some interesting context here, Anderson. When I talk to Republicans on Capitol Hill who have been in discussions with White House officials, have spoken to the president, several have told me that there are people inside the White House, including the president, who believe the current total, more than 80,000, is actually an overcount, that individuals that have died have been labeled as uh, COVID deaths that didn't actually have the virus. Anthony Fauci is not in that group. He said when he was asked specifically if the number of 80,000 was low or high, he said, quote, most of us believe it is actually higher than 80,000. Carefully choosing his words, saying most of us inside the White House believe that's the case. But Anthony Fauci believes 80,000, at least at this point in time, which we've already gone north of that, is actually under where the total COVID deaths likely are. Where it ends up, of course, Anderson, still an open question. Phil Mattingly. Phil, thanks very much. Joining us now is Chief Medical Correspondent Dr. Sanjay Gupta. Also, Michael uh, Osterholm, Director of the Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy at the University of Minnesota. Um, Sanjay, first of all, just on the death toll, I mean, the idea that the White House, that the president or folks there are behind the scenes, you know, poo-pooing the death toll, saying that it's not as high in reality as, uh, as all the evidence shows that it is, and as Dr. Fauci and nearly most people who are involved in this will say, it's, it's actually underestimated. I mean, it just seems like such a blatant political stance for the president to, to you know, be whispering about or, or saying behind the scenes. Uh, he clearly doesn't, you know, want, you know, he has spoken it out loud. He says, you know, more testing means the numbers go up and that makes it look mm. bad for, you know, for the administration. Yeah, I mean, I th there's there's been uh, various studies as well because of the lack of testing, uh, because there was a lot of people who may have been uh, thought they had some other sort of respiratory illness or the flu, again, because of lack of testing, because people uh, were staying home as the hospitals, particularly in New York, were getting full. I think all those things have fed into this uh, idea. And a study came out of Yale showing this, that uh, between March and April, beginning of March, and I think the first few days in April, that the, the, the death toll, sadly, was probably really undercounted, that it may have been 10 to 12,000 people more even. So it, it's, it's, it's hard to know. I think uh, Dr. Fauci was sort of pressed on this point uh, by, by Senator Sanders. Is it 50 percent higher, I think Senator Sanders asked? And Dr. Fauci didn't want to give a number. But I think when Dr. Fauci was saying most people uh, believe this, I think he was really talking about the public health community as well, because there have been studies that have come out about this. It's a tough thing to know. But again, because of inadequate testing up front, we may we may never really know that the true number here. Uh, Michael, uh, Dr. Fauci testified that states face serious consequences if they are reopened too quickly. There's now this new modeling projecting 147,000 U.S. deaths by by August, which the researcher ties to relaxation of social distancing, increased mobility. It's obviously just, I mean, and uh, it's an obvious point, but I think it bears repeating. It's a stark reminder that this is far from over. You've talked about this as being early innings. 
Right. The, we really are at the very beginning. We could go for a period of several months where the virus basically just dies out or appears to be gone and could come back with a major wave this summer and fall. I think, again, the message we have to keep coming back to, we've infected 5 to 20 percent of the population of this country. Most of the countries in that 5 percent range. This virus is not going to even slow down its transmission until it gets to 60 or 70 percent. If you just keep remembering how many deaths, how many uh, dis financial disruption moments that have occurred in this past few months, and think how much further we have to go to find that uh, herd immunity status. You know, Michael, it's also remarkable. I mean, it's just it's stunning when you think more than 80,000 dead and that is with all the social distancing and societal upheaval and financial ruin that, that has taken place. Um, had we not gone through all that, there's no telling what the death toll would have been. Yes, I'm certain that we have prevented a number of deaths uh, and, and deaths that basically wouldn't normally be thought of. We're thinking right now of long-term care and prisons and meatpacking plants, but we're going to see more and more of this in the community. The 52-year-old individual who doesn't have any other risk factors, and that's what I think we've prevented more cases in that type of uh, population. But as mm -hmm. we go on with time, those cases are going to be uh, on, the, on the books, unfortunately. As a 52-year-old individual, uh, I'm paying particular attention to what you just said. Uh, Dr. Sanjay, Dr. Fauci said that the school reopenings will vary from region to region. He also said that having a vaccine for the upcoming school year would be a, a bit of a bridge too far. California State Universities plan to cancel most in-person classes through, through the fall. We just talked to uh, Mayor Garcetti about L L.A. I'm wondering what you make of it. And what, for you, what was the biggest thing that came out of the hearings today? Well, you know, I do think uh, I find Dr. Fauci's language, he, he's so masterful at what he does, a bridge too far to talk about a vaccine this fall. I don't think anybody has been thinking that a vaccine would be available this fall. Um, but, you know, it's, it's a question of balancing the, the hopefulness of people with the honesty, which I think he's quite good at. Uh, you know, I think as far as schools go, um, you heard about colleges, uh, Cal State probably, you know, going to online. I think we're going to probably see that at a lot of universities. I'd be curious what what Dr. Osterholm thinks. I think with grade schools, it may be a little different only because, um, you know, I think there's a real, real inertia to try and, uh, especially for younger kids, to see if they might be able to have some socialization within a bricks and mortar structure. It's gonna feel different. I mean, maybe staggered start times, uh, you know, obviously not cafeterias or assemblies or any mass gatherings. And if things are, are not going well in a particular community, if you're starting to see more and more cases, they may have to pull back or, or not start school at all. But I think that, you know, as far as the, the lower school, K through, K through 12, uh, I think that there's a real desire to try and open up those schools. I spoke to people within the LA United uh, School District, the LA Unified School District, the second largest in the country, and they say they would like to do this, but we'll see what the summer holds. And Michael, does it make any sense to you at all that the CDC guidelines for reopening still have not been released? I mean, CDC Director Redfield said today that they'd be released soon. Dr. Burks, you know, was on our town hall last week and sort of, you know, claimed that, oh, they're not being squashed. They're, you know, it's just in editing. Um, but it certainly that was contradicted by, you know, word coming out of the White House earlier that very day. So, I mean, it's. Reopening is beginning and the CDC guidelines aren't even out. It seems, again, another example of the kind of the CDC being sidelined and kneecapped. 
-hmm. Well, first of all, I give great credit to the uh, governors and even the mayors of this country that have had to do a lot of the heavy lifting to make decisions about what to do. But even that is a bit discouraging because, as you may recall, we did have some uh, coming back out of the uh, lockdown kind of criteria that the White House had. We're not following that. Uh, right now, we have 42 states that are releasing or uh, coming back to uh, what had previously existed for business. And in those states, we have many of them that have cases increasing right now. So I am concerned as a nation, even if we have more criteria, we've got to wrestle with this. How are we going to make the decisions what to do and not do? And right now, we're not really making, I think, decisions based on any data. People say test, test, test. I've not seen anybody using testing data right now to give us a sense of what we should do or not do. Yeah, I mean, that's a terrifying sentence. We're not making any decisions based on data. I mean, that is uh, yeah. that is something to, to really focus on in the days ahead. Uh, uh, M- Michael, thank you, as always. Michael Osterholm, uh, always great to have your expertise. Thank Sanjay, you. stick around. Still ahead tonight, we're going to continue our conversation about states reopening with Ohio Governor Mike DeWine, why he's confident it's the right move, even as health officials urge caution. And later, the Speaker of New York City's Council joins me to discuss when the city may partially reopen and also just what a reopening might look like in New York City, which has been the epicenter. As we reported earlier, model has been cited by the White House is out with the new numbers that again raise the projected death toll. According to an institute at the University of, uh, uh, of uh, the University of Washington, the number of deaths in the U.S. from the coronavirus through August 4th are now projected to be 147,000. That's an increase of 10,000 lives due to less social distancing. Joining us now from uh, from Washington is CNN's Jim Acosta. Has the White House responded to the increased number of, of dead predicted in this new model? Uh, not just yet, Anderson. We do know that the White House has embraced this model in the past, though President Trump just the other day was complaining that uh, these, models, uh, these models have not been consistent and they haven't been accurate. And we should also note uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci on the Coronavirus Task Force has also expressed his mis- some of his misgivings with these models, that they are based on the assumptions you put into the models. Uh, but at the same time, Anderson, it doesn't sound as though uh, the increase uh, of, of this projection up to 147,000 deaths is going to affect how this White House uh, is approaching reopening the country. Uh, We saw Kayleigh McEnany, the White House press secretary, in the briefing room earlier this afternoon uh, saying, look, if if we stay closed too long, you're going to see people not going in for needed medical procedures. Uh, You're going to see deaths going up because of drug and alcohol abuse and so on. And so barring some massive increase in these estimates or projections, Anderson, I just don't see the president really wavering in terms of his approach to reopening the country and wanting to do it as soon as possible. So, Jim, what is the policy moving forward from the White House now about, you know, letting the American people hear from Dr. Fauci, hear from Dr. Burks, hear from the coronavirus task force? Is that now, are those daily, I mean, I know the, they say they're not going to get rid of the task force, but uh, have they muzzled the task yeah. force? Or are they not going to have daily briefings from the task force? Because, I mean, you know, it's like if a tree falls in the forest and no one's around, do you hear it? Right. And they did have a task force meeting earlier this afternoon. Uh, we understand Dr. Brooks and Dr. Fauci were both there. They were uh, distancing themselves from one another uh, because of the situation with the vice president's uh, press secretary testing positive for the coronavirus. It does seem that these coronavirus briefings uh, uh, that made so much news in a positive and negative sense for the president uh, for several weeks, that is off for now. The president prefers to do these Uh, press conferences where he feels that he can control the message a lot better, although things went off the rails yesterday. Uh, But in the meantime, it does seem, Anderson, that they are comfortable 
uh, keeping Dr. Fauci off to the sidelines, uh, keeping him away from the cameras as much as possible. They let him testify earlier today up on Capitol Hill, uh, teleworking in, I suppose you could call it, uh, zooming into that, that hearing. Uh, but time and again, we saw him contradict the administration from uh, one, ex one issue to another. Uh, that obviously doesn't sit well with people inside the administration. They see Dr. Fauci as somebody who, who kind of throws cold water on the president's optimism. And so my sense is, Anderson, from here on out, you're going to see less of Dr. Fauci, less of Dr. Burks, and potentially more of the president uh, having news conferences. Uh, but as, we, as you and I both know, Anderson, uh, they kind of make this up as they go along. What happens today may not necessarily mean uh, what happens tomorrow. But, but for the moment, it does sound like these doctors have been sidelined. Anderson? I mean, we need more than anything, you know, clear, uh, fact-based science now and hearing from the scientists who are, you know, deeply involved in this coronavirus task force is critical. Um, I just find it so strange that the White House, I mean, not strange, but just sad that the White House or the president seems to be sidelining at least Dr. Fauci. Um, uh, anyway, we'll see. Yeah. Uh, They're, keenly aware of these Thank you. They're, They're keenly aware of yeah. how. Yeah, you bet. Well, no, no, you're saying they're keenly aware of, of poll numbers. They're keenly aware of these poll numbers and how they show the president. We have a new CNN poll out today, uh, public uh, disapproval of the president going up. Uh, and at the same time, you know, confidence in Dr. Fauci remains as high as uh, any public figure in America when it comes to this pandemic. They're, they're aware of that. And that's why you're seeing just this evening, Anderson, Trump advisors on social media sniping at Dr. Fauci because they see him as not on board, not on the same page as the president. No question about it. Yeah. Yeah. If, if the White House is looking at poll numbers for scientists, I mean, we are that's. We're in a pandemic. That's remarkable. Jim Acosta, appreciate it. Joining us now is Ohio Governor uh, Mike DeWine. Governor DeWine, thanks so much for being with us. I appreciate it. I know how busy you are. You. Um, Dr. Warnings, Dr. Fauci's warning about, you know, the, the potential for needless suffering and death if, you know, we skip the criteria and the guidelines and reopen the country, you know, prematurely or too fast. Obviously, that is one of the considerations you, you no doubt have taken into account. Uh, Ohio has not seen a 14-day downward trajectory in cases, which was one of the benchmarks initially laid out by the coronavirus task force. Um, can you just talk about your decision? Why aren't you waiting until that happens? What other criteria are you looking at? Well, Anderson, I think there's a risk if we open up or if we don't open up. Uh, you know, we can't continue to uh, have this down economy uh, so much. Uh, and quite frankly, people are, are anxious to get to get moving and getting things going. But what we've tried to do, what we have done, uh, is get the best scientific evidence that we can so that the how we open up um, is the best that we can do. I mean, for example, I'm working today on uh, child care. And how can we do this? And we're going to announce this in a few days. People are going back to work. They need child care. But, uh, you know, grave concern about uh, little kids who uh, maybe don't get sick themselves, but, uh, you know, they take it from one family back back to numerous families. And so what we're going to do when we roll this out in a few days, uh, I think it's going to be the best child care uh, plan in the nation in the sense of we're going to have smaller classes sizes than I think any anybody else. 
Um, and so mm-hmm. we're trying to do it as carefully as we can, uh, but we do know it's a risk. And my message to Ohioans again today was the same as it's been every day, and that is you got to wear a mask. Uh, you got to keep the social distancing. You got to be careful. Uh, if you're high risk, you probably shouldn't go out. Um, these things have, have not changed. The virus is still out there. But we also know that when uh, the economy goes flat uh, and stays that way for a long period of time, some other very horrendous things occur that are not just economic, not just in people's paycheck, but in, in their medical care, uh, in their health. Um, we see things like uh, domestic violence that, that historically go up uh, when we see unemployment uh, go up. And so these are things that we have to try to balance. Um, we're trying to do it in a very, very, we are doing it yeah. in a very, very careful way, as careful as we can. But yes, there's there's certainly a, a risk and we we need to understand that as we go through this. Yeah. I mean, these are not easy decisions for, for any leader to make. I think the last time we talked or, or a recent time we talked, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, you talked about trying to scale up the contact tracing, the testing. And I'm just wondering how that's going. I, if memory serves me, you had said, I think you wanted to aim for like 1,800 or so contact tracers. Um, is that still, if I'm accurate, is that well, the number yeah. you're still no, looking absolutely. for or, or trying to get to? Yes. And it's interesting. We had a ton of applications that so we're very happy and we're starting to hire people. So that is coming along. Uh, the other thing, of course, is is the testing itself. And uh, our capacity is up. Uh, our testing continues to go up, but it's got to go up a lot more. I was just on a call tonight with two former governors who I've asked to help me, uh, Gov- Governor Taft and Governor Celeste, uh, and a uh, long conference call right before I came on here about how we continue to to grow that testing. It's it's important. We need to be able to have it so that we can vigorously trace uh, we also have to have it so that, frankly, we can go into some if there's a hot spot that we can move in and and take care of that hot spot. So our, the testing is a lot more robust today than, than it was the last time you and I talked. Uh, but we got we still have a ways to go. Well, that's great in the contact tracers that you had a lot of people w- wanting to do that job. And obviously, that's uh, that's going to be a critical, a critical role. Uh, and again, I, I just think uh, it's for any leader. This is an extraordinarily difficult time and difficult tests. And I appreciate you taking the time to talk to us, Governor DeWine. Thank you. Thank you, Anderson. Appreciate being with you. The, uh, the coronavirus, of course, is bad enough, but doctors are becoming concerned over other unusual illnesses that may be con- uh, connected to the pandemic. Uh, we wanted to try to know more about this. So Sanjay's gonna, uh, Sanjay Gupta is going to join us uh, shortly just to take a look at, at what, this, uh, what this may mean. We'll be right back. As Dr. Anthony Fauci kept saying at today's hearings, there are still many unknowns about the coronavirus and its impact, especially when it comes to kids. Overall, children are far less likely to become infected, but Fauci told the senators that there are troubling signs with children who do have the disease. Children presenting with COVID-19 who actually have a very strange inflammatory syndrome, very similar to Kawasaki's syndrome. I think we better be careful if we are not cavalier and thinking that children are completely immune to the deleterious effects. And doctors said that isn't the only concerning development arising from COVID. There are, in fact, a lot of others. Sanjay's back with us for a look. Now I'm ready to go out into the ER. I uh, don't know quite what to expect yet. 
don't know what to expect in so many ways. The coronavirus has challenged ER doctors like Matt Bai since it hit, baffling doctors with its mysterious symptoms. Coronavirus is a respiratory virus. It can spread through droplets with each cough or each breath. You have a droplet that then goes into your nose, maybe down to your throat, and eventually down into your lungs. But some people have critically low oxygen levels and yet still appear like you and me. Almost unimaginable how people could be awake and alert and have oxygen levels that are half normal. And it gets even more confusing. A respiratory virus doesn't typically cause isolated loss of smell or bumps and lesions on the feet, from nose to toes and nearly every organ in between. How does a microscopic strand of RNA wreak so much and such varied destruction? So when they come in, uh, they can be to the extreme where they have no pulse uh, already, or they're coming in uh, breathing really fast and hypoxic with a very low oxygen level uh, and cold and blue. It could have to do with the way the virus typically enters our cells in the first place. You're looking at the ACE2 receptor. Now see how the spikes on the coronavirus bind to the surface of the cell. This particular receptor is known to be in lung tissue, but it's also known to be in the heart and other parts of the body. It seems that this ACE2 receptor is expressed more potentially with age. Higher levels of ACE2 are often present in men, which could also explain why they are most likely to be affected more severely. Patients like 33-year-old Warnell Vega, who had a life-threatening blood clot in his lungs. Next thing I know, I was on the floor. Then there's the mystery of what it's doing to some children, at least three dead now in New York, from an illness with symptoms similar to Kawasaki disease, a condition where the blood vessels become inflamed. We have about 100 cases of an inflammatory disease in young children that seems to be created by the COVID virus. The children that are having these signs of inflammatory conditions, they already had the infection over two weeks ago. This is not like another virus that I've seen. This tiny little virus, which cannot even be killed, because truth is, it's not even alive. And you remember, uh, Anderson, the, the viruses need a host in order to, to uh, replicate and actually uh, live inside the, the body. So a virus by itself is rather inert, which makes it even more difficult. I mean, antibiotics target specific things with bacteria. Antivirals are harder to develop for that reason, part of the challenge that we're having now. Yeah. Sanjay, I want to bring Dr. Celine Gounder, who's an infectious disease specialist and also a CNN medical analyst. Dr. Gounder, can you speak to some of the symptoms your patients have been experiencing? Well, I think, you know, in, in the way that Sanjay broke this down, you know, a key part of this is this idea of inflammation of the blood vessels. The other key part is that you have an immune system out of control. And if you think about your immune system is in every part of your body, your blood vessels go to every part of your body. And so as a result, we're seeing complications really in every single organ system. So whether it's the lungs becoming really scarred and fibrotic. So in other words, they're, they're not elastic like a balloon. They're really tough. And so it's difficult to inflate your lungs. You're seeing blood clots uh, anywhere from in the heart to the lungs to the kidneys. Um, and, and it's also why you're seeing people with these cold 
white toes and fingers. Um, you know, we're also seeing patients who lose their sense of taste and smell really for weeks at a time after having had this infection. And then you see patients with a spectrum of illnesses like the Kawasaki's and children and, and similar diseases in adults. Mm-hmm. So, Sanjay, explain, I mean, you know, there are many symptoms also persist even after a patient uh, recovers from the virus. So what, what are some of those? What does that mean? Yeah, it's interesting, you know, as we've been doing some reporting on this, first of all, the idea of looking into recovery uh, wasn't the top priority for the you know, first few months. People were just trying to figure out what was going on with this disease. But now we are starting to see some studies that look at recovery. The World Health Organization uh, recently said, you know, recovery uh, uh, can, can be six weeks, can even be longer in these patients. And it can be uh, far more, you know, significant than people realize. Uh, oftentimes patients are sort of thought of as either you have the disease or you're recovered. But even during recovery, and Celine, I think, has talked about this before, but 20 to 30 percent decreased lung function. We talked to a patient who was a pretty fit person who now became more breathless, even just walking one city block or walking up a flight of stairs. So we don't we don't know uh, still, you know, obviously this is new for for everybody, but uh, whether it's a post inflammatory state or it's just true recovery still, it does seem to last longer, I think, than people first realized. And Dr. Gander, have there been issues with respiratory symptoms after patients, you know, quote unquote, recover? Oh, it can take weeks for somebody to get better. Some of our patients, especially some of our elderly patients, where we don't have a safe way to get them home, maybe with oxygen at home, uh, maybe because there's just not the support they need to monitor them, we've had to keep them in the hospital for weeks, for you know, well over a month to make sure that they're on the mend. Um, and, and even then, they can still have some of these complications with as I said, scarred lung tissue. So their lungs just don't open up the way they're supposed to anymore. Uh, Dr. Gander, thanks so much. Sanjay as well, thank you, appreciate it. Really great uh, story, uh, Sanjay, to to kind of show in detail how that works. Uh, New York, of course, been hit hardest by the pandemic. Up next, uh, what what it may look like when it begins to reopening. We'll talk to uh, Council Speaker uh, Corey Johnson. We'll be right back. Symptoms of overactive bladder, or OAB, may be bothersome. As many as 46 million Americans, 40 years of age or older, have reported symptoms of OAB. I got to the point where I was constantly having to plan my outings around being able to go to the bathroom. Felt like my bladder was calling the shots. Many people like her decided enough was enough. It was time to talk to a doctor. We spoke to a few of them to hear their stories in their own words. Listen in at oabmed.com and hear how they discovered Mirbetric Mirabegron. Mirbetric is a prescription medicine for adults used to treat OAB symptoms of urgency, frequency, and leakage. Do not take if you have a known allergic reaction to Mirbetric or its ingredients. Mirbetric may increase blood pressure. Tell your doctor right away if you have trouble emptying your bladder or have a weak urine stream. Mirbetric may cause serious allergic reactions like swelling of the face, lips, throat, or tongue, or trouble breathing. If experienced, stop taking and tell your doctor right away. Mirbetric may interact with other medicines. Tell your doctor if you are taking thiaridazine, melaril, and melaril S, flecainide, tambacore, propafenone, rhythmol, digoxin, linoxin, or solifenacin, succinate, vesicare. Tell your doctor if you have liver or kidney problems. Common side effects include increased blood pressure, common cold or flu symptoms, sinus irritation, dry mouth, urinary tract infection, bladder inflammation, back or joint pain, constipation, dizziness, and headache. See our ad in Reader's Digest magazine or call 1-855-697-2387. Hear real stories about how Mirbetric can help OAB symptoms at oabmed.com and ask your doctor if it could help you. 
That's O-A-B-M-E-D.com. As you may have heard earlier in the program, Los Angeles Mayor Eric Garcetti says his city is slowly beginning to reopen despite a public health official saying a stay-at-home order for Los Angeles County could be extended through July. The mayor says uh, there will be some sort of stay-at-home, but the exact permutation of it may change. If that's the case for the nation's second largest city, we wanted to look at New York City, the biggest city in America, where thousands have died and where reopening is still some distance away. Joining us now is Speaker of the New York City Council, Corey Johnson. Corey, thanks for being with us. Um, Governor Cuomo announced that certain parts of New York State ready to begin reopening, obviously not the case for New York City. When you look at New York City, what does reopening look like to you? Well, we have to make sure we do it in a safe way. And the governor has laid out seven metrics that need to be met before we can open. New York City has met four of those metrics. There are still three metrics that we haven't met. One of them has to do with the number of contact tracers that we have up and going. And I think so much of the conversation around reopening really hinges on making sure we have the infrastructure in place to do it safely. Mass testing so that people can get tested, major contact tracing, quarantine hotels and dormitories for people that need it, uh, potentially surveillance that doesn't violate people's civil liberties, but that people could opt into, and then still the social distancing and the mandatory mask wearing, plus the hospital capacity. That's what it looks like. But Anderson, you're a New Yorker. The last eight weeks have been very hard. It's eerie in some ways to see an empty Times Square. And we want to make sure that if we do it, We do it safely because it would be psychologically devastating to have a large secondary infection, a spike, which would then require us to start closing things again. Well, also, I mean, we know this pandemic has hit, you know, people of color, underserved communities particularly hard. uh, And a lot of people in uh, communities of color, underserved communities have been continuing to work on the front lines because they are essential um, and you know, my concern a lot, and, and I'm sure you're thinking about this a lot, is, you know, for big companies, they're going to have the resources to clean and, you know, maybe do temperature checks. But a lot of smaller companies where, you know, people are working for, for uh, you know, low wage jobs, they may not put the effort into, you know, protecting their employees as much as they should. Yeah, I have that concern. And what we have seen really laid bare Uh, because of COVID-19 in New York City are all of the inequalities that we had known existed before the structural racism that we know exists in America and even in New York City. These essential workers, these healthcare workers, but especially the grocery store workers, the postal workers, the cops and firefighters, all of these folks continue to put their lives on the line every day. And part of the fear that you just said, Anderson, which I share, is when we start to reopen, how do you make sure you're doing it safely? We've had over 100 MTA workers who have died in the last eight weeks, who the subway conductors and bus drivers. We've had more than 50 uh, Department of Education personnel who have passed away in the last eight weeks. We need to make sure that uh, the way we do this, that we don't do it in a way that the communities that have already bared the biggest brunt of this, that they don't suffer even more as we begin to reopen. I also hope that as, you know, as we do reopen and, 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 you know, whenever this ends and whatever that looks like, that we don't forget the people who kept New York going at this time, which are the delivery workers and the grocery store clerks. I mean, they are 
the essential workforce, and, and they they kept everybody else safe and alive. They kept they kept everyone else safe, and I think it's really a moment for us to recognize that these workers are always essential. They're essential outside of a pandemic. They've always been that. And we need to make sure that they are being protected effectively. But also, Anderson, I'm sure you covered it and CNN's been covering it. The bill that has been unveiled today in Congress in the House would put hundreds of millions of hundreds of billions of dollars in hazard pay for these workers. We want that hazard pay for the workers in New York City, our healthcare workers, our grocery workers, our delivery workers. We really need that on top of the state and local aid that New York City needs. The city is looking at an $8 billion deficit in the short term, and it is offensive and indefensible that Mitch McConnell is calling state and local aid a blue state bailout. We need the support for New York City to get back on its feet. Mm. Corey Johnson, uh, appreciate your efforts. Uh, thanks very much. Appreciate it. Up next, we're going to continue to remember those who've lost their lives during this pandemic. I remember the Navajo Nation left her mark when we continue. Tonight, we remember more of the lives that have been lost from this virus. Valentina Blackhorse was a proud member of the Navajo Nation, deeply connected to her community, rooted in her culture. She aspired to one day become a Navajo Nation Council delegate or even president of the Navajo Nation. She was close with her family. Her sister uh, says her last words to her were, I love you. She leaves behind a one-year-old daughter. Valentina Blackhorse was just 28 years old. Celia Yapinago was a nurse who worked for nearly 40 years at the same hospital in Kansas City, Missouri. When the pandemic hit, Celia told her family not to worry because she worked on a different floor from where the coronavirus patients were being seen. But after one of her patients showed symptoms, Celia became infected. She originally came from the Philippines. She was a devoted mom who never missed her son's baseball and basketball games. She loved being a nurse, was often a mentor to many of the younger nurses that she worked with. Shelly Apinago was 69 years old. Our thoughts go out to their families and all the families of those who have lost loved ones in this pandemic and whose lives have been changed by this pandemic. The news continues. I want to hand it over to Chris for Cuomo Primetime. 